The information contained in this podcast is general in nature and is not to be taken as financial or personal advice. It does not consider your objectives, financial situation or needs. You should consider whether this information is suitable for you and your personal circumstances before acting on it. Hi, and welcome to The Home Run, your guide to buying your first home in Australia. On this show, I'll walk you through the home buying process from every angle. We cover the steps to take, the pitfalls to avoid, and the answers to all your questions you've been dying to ask. No matter what stage you're at, you'll learn everything you need to know about buying your first home. I'm your host, Michael Nasser, and I'm a mortgage broker at Lens Street, and I really love helping people buy their first home. Today, I'm joined by the extremely impressive Amy Lenardi. Amy's done it all. Not only is she a buyer's advocate, property expert, and investment advisor, but Amy is also passionate about providing resources for first-home buyers, which you can hear in her excellent show, The Australian Property Podcast. In today's episode, we're going back to basics as Amy breaks down what to expect when you buy your first home. You'll hear Amy share the common timelines involved in buying a house. She'll explain everything from the very first step of deciding you want to buy a house to what you need to consider even after the keys are in your hand. And finally, she'll share a sneak preview of what you can expect from her new First Home Buyer podcast and guidebook. Let's jump in. Amy, thank you for joining us today on the show. Thank you. Great to be here. How did you become a buyer's advocate? Yeah, so I've been a buyer's advocate for just over 10 years now. So don't be fooled by my youthful appearance. I'm just joking. (laughs) (laughs) Previously was working um, in property leasing briefly and prior to that was working for the state government. So totally different change of pace, but very fortunate to be working in this profession because honestly can't imagine doing any other job. And it feels like you're kind of everywhere. You've got a whole heap of shows, podcasts and pretty active on social media. Where did you get started in the podcasting world? I've got my own business. And then during COVID here in Victoria, real estate agents, we couldn't work. We couldn't inspect properties. We couldn't purchase properties. So I utilized that time to work on a podcast and familiarize myself with how to do podcasts and how to put that information out there. And it was very successful. It was really popular and I didn't even market it. And all of a sudden these people were listening to it. And I thought, how did you even find out about it? Over time, I've really learned how to, I suppose, provide that information in a really concise manner and understand what, especially first home buyers, want to learn about and what they don't know. Because having done this for 10 years, sometimes you do forget what buyers don't know and just sort of guiding them in the process and the questions that they should be asking themselves and the real estate agents. And did the first home buyer side of things come naturally or, or, I mean, being a buyer's advocate, obviously, you know, you'd see a whole heap of variety of buyers, first home buyers, investors and and the like, or upgraders or, or downsizers, what may, but that first home buyer appeal, like how did that fall into place? Was it a natural thing or was it something that you've always been really conscious of? Well, as a buyer's advocate, I work with all different types of buyers. I do have quite a few first home buyers as clients, but then downsizers, expats, investors, all types. But I've found that it's the first home buyers that are generally the most hungry for this information, the ones with less knowledge, the ones that are out there who are listening to the podcast and and seeking this information. And also they are the demographic that need the most help, but can't necessarily afford the cost of a buyer's agent. So it's a way for me to get that information out there to that broad audience. 
And I guess that first purchase is so critical as well. So um, if you do get it wrong, it can sort of have that long-term negative effect. So that information upfront can really assist. Do you have an example of a recent success story that you've had with a first home buyer that you can share with us? I have a case study from not too long ago. They're actually clients from Sydney and they were moving down to Melbourne. So they were relying on me for not only helping them purchase the property, but to really give them an understanding around location. So what locations could suit their lifestyle? Can they afford what they want in those areas? And what that meant is we started off by looking at a broader selection of suburbs and I gave them a lot of homework to do before we officially got started. So they moved down here, they were in short-term accommodation and then they started visiting these areas and we'd have a recap on them. And they really started to quite quickly resonate with certain parts of Melbourne and in particular Elwood. So that's an area which wasn't on their list beforehand that ended up being just ideal for them. And we managed to buy almost straight away. So within a couple of weeks of them moving down here, and that's because we did put a lot of effort and time and research into that prep work beforehand. That's when things can happen that are unexpected as well. So you sort of have a bit of a plan and and then you execute it and it's like, well, hold on, no, I really like this or I really like that. And then you sort of evolve from there, I, I guess. And it sounds like what happened with them. Well, before you get started on your, I call it your official property search. So that is once you've got your pre-approval in place and you're out there and you're technically ready to buy financially and emotionally, the more prep work you do before you get to that point, the better, because you'll be looking at the right types of properties, not setting yourself up for failure, wasting your time, telling agents you want one thing and they know you can't afford it. So they're less likely to help you or give you off markets. And then you don't end up feeling disheartened because you haven't done that put that property brief together and done a reality check. It's so helpful to do it. And and it also means that if the right property comes up really quickly, you'll feel more comfortable considering buying it rather than looking back at it a few months later and saying, damn, that's the one that got away just because I wasn't emotionally ready yet. No, I think that strategy can help you execute without a doubt in terms of what you're looking to do. The main focus of today's chat is around the home buying timeline and looking at it as a timeline and what occurs and how it occurs and and that process. So like I said, I want to step back and have a look at the first home buying process from a bird's eye view. And to do that, step one, you know, you've decided you want to buy a house. Let's say, you know, you're in that category. Um, I've just decided I want to buy a house. What's the first step that a buyer or a potential first home buyer should be considering at that stage? Yeah. So the first step is taking a step back actually and figuring out why you actually want to buy, making sure that is coming from an internal place rather than external pressures, like feeling like this is something that you have to do or your parents are telling you to do it or you see all of your friends buying. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the right option for you or the right time frame for you as well. So figuring out your why and that will guide the entire rest of your strategy moving forward. And then from there, figuring out your when, and that's a combination of your personal situation. So yes, maybe you've decided to buy a property, but if you're thinking about changing jobs or starting a business or traveling right now might not be the best time for you. And that's in combination with then your finances. So speaking to a mortgage broker and understanding what your capacity is and your limitations, and then using those conversations to set some goals in place. It's all well and good to say, I want to buy a property. I want to spend 800 grand and buy this property in this location. If that's not achievable, then what's the point? When I say achievable, that's a combination of kind of three things, which is, can you afford those mortgage repayments? Can you 
service that loan? Is the bank even going to give you enough money? And then how much deposit you need? And can you save that up within the right time frame? We will talk about these steps relatively quickly, but the reality of the length of time between steps can be a long one or it's an indefinite one potentially. And where you start, obviously somewhere, and then it's like, well, hold on, I need to raise this much deposit and this is how much I've got. So therefore you might have to do a sub-step or it's like, well, now we've got to work to that particular strategy. Or even with your finances, we've mentioned about sort of, you know, that pre-approval and being able to borrow those amount of funds. It might be then trying to say, well, hold on, I'm at this particular point. I need to earn this much to get the loan that I need. So I need to work towards a pay rise and knowing what that may be, I think. So mapping that out makes total sense. And if you can't, you've got to reassess. So if the broker says, okay, well, you've got to either save this amount or be earning this amount and that's not achievable for you, then that's okay. But you sit back and say, okay, what are my other options? How can I get there? Or what can I change in the meantime? Or what other, what other um, ways can I get there? For example, considering first home government benefits. So the first home guarantee, which allows you to buy a property with as little as a 5% deposit. Um, and you don't have to pay lenders mortgage insurance. So a broker will be able to help you figure out these options. That's the great thing. And in some cases, help you apply for these things as well. We've gone through those considerations. We've figured out the why and, and the how, and we've spoken to a broker and we're working on that pre-approval and we get the pre-approval. So thumbs up, we're good to go searching. What happens at that particular point and how do you go about finding a place? Yeah, well, I would say before you even get the pre-approval, that's the point in time where you need to be doing all of your research. And I think that research is fun when it comes to property. And when I use the word research, some people think, oh, that's a lot of time and effort. But it's not like combing through graphs and data and statistics or anything. It's actually just first of all, spending time in the locations that you're considering and checking out the public transport and the streetscapes and the amenities, but then also using the sold section of realestate.com.au or domain, spend hours and hours and hours in there. That is all of the information that you actually need to understand what things are selling for in those locations you're looking at and can you afford them? And if not, if you can't see anything that you like, you've got to change something. So, figuring out what you want and then importantly making sure that you can afford it. And that sold section will tell you that. I'm making it sound easier than it is, but the reality is is the information is there at your fingertips rather than looking at things that are just for sale. That's a small snapshot of things and the prices aren't reflective of what they might necessarily go for. I like the fact that you're mentioning spend time in the location because you may think that you want to be there or for whatever reason, then you go and spend some time there and whether it's, I mean, I'll just say the general vibe of that suburb and see if that is really what you're after. I think that's a really massive point that perhaps not a lot of people think about. Yeah, exactly. And during that phase too, it can sometimes make you realize that what you think you want, you want something different. And for example, sometimes I'll have buyers tell me they have to be walking distance to a train station. I say, that's totally fine. No problem. But then once we stress test it a little bit and they start looking at properties that are say a short drive to the station, or they can get a bus in between, but their property itself is much bigger and better and more modern, et cetera. And they realize, well, you know what? That's probably not as important to me to be close to the station, actually value a bigger house more. So that research process and starting to go to inspections and getting a feel for what your money buys you can help you figure out your priorities. That can change over time and that's okay. 
Yeah, and I think that flexible mindset from the beginning in terms of what you're planning to do and throughout the purchasing process potentially is something that you have to be mindful of. And I guess it gets hard because when it comes to these types of purchases, we get quite emotional and so we can get caught up in a particular way of thinking or what we want and being mindful from the outset that I need to be flexible with this probably assists the process, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. And you are allowed to be emotional when it comes to buying property as long as that doesn't override your rational thinking. I think that emotion is important because this is your home that you're going to live in. If you aren't emotional about it at all, then is it the right option for you? Is it the right property for you? But yeah, you always need to come back to say when you are approaching how much you're going to negotiate or bid at auction, you know, working through the comparable sales analysis and figuring out what the market is doing and setting your limit that way, allowing emotion to come in a little bit but then not overstretching yourself or paying a huge premium because you haven't put the consideration into it and you get carried away and your emotions overrule that previous information. Yeah, and to keep those emotions in check, I, I guess that's where the research comes in. Are you able to give us some examples of what the research process might look like for a first-time buyer? You've mentioned real estate and the likes of those websites. Is there anything else in terms of a basic research process there that one could adopt? Well, in the pre-purchase phase, it's very much that spending time in the location. You know, if you want to get to the next level, reading the council structure plans, going through all their planning department information on them, there's so much information on the council websites. You can go to that extreme if you wanted to. But then once you are ready to purchase and you've got your strategy in place and you're out there looking at inspections, there's a couple of steps in the due diligence process. And when you're inspecting properties, you know, making sure that that property ticks all of your non-negotiables, there's there's a lot you can look at. I actually um, started making a checklist as part of my online course for things that you should look out for. And I got up to 100. <laughs> I started off with like 20 and then I escalated from there. I got to 80. I thought I can think of some more. So I've got 100 things there to look out for. And I'm not suggesting that you have to look at every single one of these every time, but it's just food for thought. So making sure that you're looking at the right things, it's ticking your non-negotiables. And then from there, any property that you want to pursue, you have to make sure you do all of the due diligence steps before you put an offer in or before you go to auction. And there's a couple of steps there. So there is the, doing your comparable sales analysis and your market analysis figuring out what that property is worth to you. It is getting your contract looked at. It is getting a building inspection. You might do this before or after you submit an offer if it's a private sale, depending on the situation, doing a check-in with your broker, making sure that nothing's changed with your finance, making sure they're happy with the type of property that you're looking at, local planning checks. You can do that online or calling council. So there's a lot of extra steps that you then need to do before you like seriously move forward because you can highlight deal breakers through that process. You can find out things that will influence your final budget and that's just an essential thing that you need to do beforehand. Yeah, and you mentioned checking with your broker and, and the budget side of things. I mean, with the rate increases that have been currently happening, that is affecting borrowing capacities. And so if you've had a pre-approval and it's been sort of two or three months and as we speak now, getting your broker to review that your borrowing capacity hasn't been affected by the recent rate chart increases is probably a, a point there that a lot of people need to be mindful of as well as it currently stands. Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to finance, we don't want to take any risks there. Absolutely not. What are the biggest mistakes that people are making in the lead up to buying their first home? And well, I guess, what have you seen? And if there's an example that you have? 
So one mistake is really when it comes down to putting that brief together and doing the reality check. And I always come back to that because it's something which, because I've done so many times with buyers, I feel like it's an obvious thing to do, but it's not because how would you know? And I liken this to anything that we approach in our life. If we don't have a plan in place, then you can't create a strategy on how to achieve that plan. So putting together your property brief and understanding exactly what you want rather than just going out there and looking at random properties and you you end up just spending so much time and not potentially getting anywhere or confusing yourself. And then just making sure that you don't have what we call in real estate, although I'm sure it's a saying elsewhere, the beer budget champagne taste where, you know, you've got this wish list and these are all the things I want, but you can't afford it in the locations that you're looking at. And if that happens, you just, like I said earlier, you end up on this wild goose chase and agents don't take you seriously. So that's the key thing is the pre-planning phase. So writing down your brief and making sure it's achievable. Another mistake I see is not realizing that there's this big hidden market out there in the property world called off-market properties. And we buy, as advocates, I buy around 30% of my clients' properties off-market. That's quite a lot. And these are properties that aren't on the internet and they are sometimes great. They are motivated vendors and they're reasonably priced. Sometimes they are a waste of time because the vendor's selling off-market because they maybe want a bit too much money or they're not in a rush. But the whole point of it is to give yourself more options and to access this part of the market where you might find your dream home and you will have less competition because that property is not on the internet where hundreds of people are looking at it. And I would say pretty much nobody calls every single real estate agent who is selling properties in that area to say, hey, what do you have off market? I do that because that's my job but no buyer is going to do that. So, and then they're, therefore they are in theory missing out on a lot of properties. As a home buyer, you know, you're buying a property once every seven to 10 years, maybe less, maybe more, but, and speaking to agents in that time. So asking, you know, you're only asking that question once or twice in that period of time, whereas you're doing it on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, you know, speaking to the agents and asking those questions. Exactly. We buy, um, say on average two, three properties a week. And I have thousands of agents on my database who will get my email every week and then just constantly calling them in a, I call it polite nagging. (laughs) Yeah, it's got to be a certain way. Yeah, exactly. And that's how I get them. All right. So there's some of the mistakes, I guess, and and a bit of the planning process in terms of pre-purchase and not sort of dwelling too much on the mechanisms of sale or the method of sale. But, you know, you've purchased the property and now it's looking sort of after the purchase. So you've got the house. How long is it usually between buying the house and actually getting the keys? So settlement timeframes can vary. They are generally shorter than 30 days. That's because there's a lot of paperwork and you need to get your loan approval and everything in the meantime. But I've had settlements at, you know, seven, eight months before, and that's uncommon. I would say on average 60 days, but the reality is it can be negotiable depending on what you want and depending on what the vendor wants as well. And every state has, I guess, their own mechanisms of a default. Like I know in, in New South Wales, it's it's 42 days as the standard. That can, like you've mentioned, be negotiated up or down accordingly. And I'm sure in Victoria, it's probably something similar as well. And is there is there a standard set of days or is it totally up for negotiation in terms of what it is? It's totally up for negotiation. The most common though being 60 days. All right. Is there anything that you need to do 
while you're in this settlement period waiting between purchasing and, and waiting for settlement and getting the keys, what are the main things that someone should be considering at that point in time? So you should be ensuring that anything that comes through to you to sign, you need to do it straight away. Read through it. This is your conveyancing documents. These are your loan documents, asking any questions if you're not sure about anything. If you haven't purchased within a strata block, also making sure you get building insurance. I do recommend doing that once you purchase unconditionally. And then you get the chance to do a final inspection beforehand as well, before you settle. So that's an opportunity to walk back through that property to check that it's in the same condition as the date you bought it. It is not the opportunity for you to then go through that property with a fine tooth comb and to say, hey, I didn't notice this before. And the agent said, oh, I was like that when you sold. That's not the point in time to do that. You do all that before you buy. It's just to make sure that it's in the same condition as when you purchased it. And if you had, say, any conditions in the contract, for example, the vendor agreed to repair certain things and that was in your offer, then that's the point in time that you check that as well. Yeah. I think that final inspection before settlement, I always feel like there is a little bit of confusion as to what the expectation is out of that particular, you know, inspection. It's, and like you've mentioned, it's not to pick up on things that were there prior or, or whatever that may be. But how would you define that, that final inspection? How do you go about it? The short answer is to identify that it is in the exact same condition as the date of sale that you bought it. And that's all the more reason why you should get a building inspection because in that building inspection, they take lots of photos and they make comments about the condition of that property. Because if you don't have that to rely on, even if you do notice something that's been broken or damaged, et cetera, if you can't prove it, you might not be in a position where you can do anything. And also it depends on the conditions in that contract some contracts won't give you any protection, if even if there is damage. So your conveyancing representative should highlight this when you buy that property. It's very rare that there are issues. But I had someone reach out to me on Instagram the other day and they were telling me how they bought this property. And at the final inspection, the person had trashed the house and they had very limited recourse based on the contract that they had signed and they tried to push back and it was ended up being a big drama. And then when time came to settle, the house was almost unlivable and they, the vendor had left 30 horses on the property. And those kind of things are unlikely not to, you know, scare people going into these situations. Yeah, 30 horses. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to say 30 horses. I was thinking like the doors are being trashed or something, but it's like there were 30 horses left on the property. And it was like, so there was some cows and chickens and I can't remember how many of those there was. But when you sign a contract, you need to understand what all of the obligations are under that contract. And for example, in that case, I have no idea what this person's circumstances are, by the way. But in that case, if I was looking at a property that was already not in great condition, there was stuff everywhere, like full of rubbish and, you know, I was unsure about it, I would get my conveyancing representative to word a really thorough clause around something like, at the time of the final inspection, if all of the rubbish is not removed, then the purchaser has the right to deduct the cost of removal from the contract. It fully protects you. But if you don't have anything like that in there, and then the contract doesn't have anything like that in there, you might not have any recourse later on. So it's just something to bear in mind. And another 
thing that happens sometimes is, you know, when you're renting a property and you have to, you know, give it such a big thorough clean when you leave, otherwise you don't get your bond back. And it it can be quite frustrating when the property manager calls you and says, oh, hey, sorry, you've got to come back. You missed a spot. It's not the case when you buy a property. The vendor doesn't have to give you that property cleaned. Sometimes they might leave a bit of rubbish there. And in theory, you can also put conditions in there to get them to clean it and to get them to remove that rubbish. But also remember when it comes to buying property, the more conditions you have in the contract, the less appealing your offer it is. So it's a fine balance. Yeah. And one thing there that I picked up on is, you know, your conveyancer may not know to put those clauses in because the conveyancer will not go and inspect the property. So in the example, of it being a really dirty property or seeing, you know, lots of issues from the outset and putting that clause in, like you mentioned, I could only imagine with a buyer's agent or a buyer's advocate that something like that becomes knowledge. Then you sort of say, well, this is what I think and let's address it with the conveyancer to get this type of clause in. That's right. You've got to realise that your conveyancing representative, this is your conveyancer or your solicitor, when they're reviewing that contract, they haven't walked through that property they don't know the circumstances. They don't know what the agent's been telling you, et cetera. So you need to give them that information and then they can guide you accordingly. Yeah, absolutely. So settlements come, it's occurred. You've got the keys to your new house. Is that the end of the process or is there anything more to consider? Uh, well, from the buying process, that's pretty much it. But now you're a homeowner. So now you've got to do the fun thing of paying off your mortgage. And then from there, I mean, there's so many strategies that you can consider moving forward. And I think a really fun, interesting exercise to do is to jump onto Google um, Offset Calculator online and you can see the power of, you know, chucking in an extra $100 a month or however much you've got into an offset account, just if you've got an offset account as an example, and how much interest that'll save you over time. So when you're thinking about mortgage reduction strategies or interest reduction strategies, you know, understanding that and how powerful it is and then doing extra things like making sure you maintain your property over time, clean the gutters out, review your insurances every year. So just really being on top of all of this extra paperwork can save you a lot of money in the long term. Cool. Well, thank you. They're great insights. Some final thoughts. So we always close our interview with two questions. The first one is, what would be your number one tip for first home buyers trying to get into the market now? My number one tip would be to speak to a mortgage broker as soon as you have a property goal. Even if you haven't yet saved money up or you feel like you might be wasting their time, find someone who's happy to speak with you now because they can help you and put you on the right track. It's almost like a personal trainer. And they can say, okay, you want to achieve this goal. How do we get there? They might send you away and then you can start saving, but you know what you're aiming for then. And you might be closer than you think or might be further than you think, but you won't know until you speak to a mortgage broker. Yeah. Or it may require readjustment as we were sort of mentioning earlier. Sort of like, well, I can maybe do this where I can't do that. And that's one of the mistakes I think you mentioned is sort of that expectation management too. It's at that point where you can really start to calibrate those expectations and sort of see what's possible. All right. Our second question, and this sort of touches on the first, when you first mentioned about the the Sydney couple moving down to Melbourne and the areas that they were looking to buy. So it's sort of location orientated. If you were a first home buyer and you had a million dollars to buy, so that was, you know, in the clear, we know that that's our purchase price. Where would you be buying? Melbourne based, I'd imagine. I'm going to give you a really boring answer and say it depends on what you want. (laughs) And you know what? Like 
every person is going to have totally different priorities. Do they want space? Do they want location to be near the beach or being out in the bush? You know, there's so many different variables. So it comes down to what your non-negotiables are, which locations you're happy to live in, how far away you want to be from the city, et cetera. Having a look what a million dollars buys you in that suburbs. If it gets you what you want, great. And if not, you've got to reassess, look slightly further out or look in a different spot. It's quite a personal one there in terms of that, and it depends on your situation. Before we wrap things up, you've just launched some very new, exciting things to help first home buyers across Australia. Can you tell us a little bit more about this new podcast and the course that you've alluded to? Yeah, so I have a podcast and also an online course which is specifically designed for first home buyers. And that's really a start to finish process, that course, which is where do you even start, no matter whether you're six months or six years away from buying a property, all the way through to getting your loan and the purchase process, how to speak with agents, negotiating, bidding, everything from start to finish, which is essentially my 10 years of experience kind of wrapped up neatly into an online course. So as a first home buyer, if you want the intel of an advocate but can't necessarily afford one or you just don't want to use one, that's totally fine. This is a more affordable option for you to consider. And what's it called and how can people find it? So it's called The First Home Guidebook and you can find it at thefirsthomeguidebook.com.au. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. If our listeners want to get in touch with you or find out more about your business and sort of, you know, how how you can maybe assist, how can they find you and get in touch with you? Yeah. So my business website is amylunardi.com.au, L-U-N-A-R-D-I. Nice. And we'll make all those links available in the show notes as well. So for all of those items there, if anyone's interested, you can jump on the show notes and get the links there. Thank you so much for your time, Amy. There were great insights there and and lots of value there that you've shared with us. So thanks so much for joining us. Very welcome. Thanks for the invite. You've been listening to The Home Run, your guide for buying your first home in Australia. This podcast was produced by LendStreet. LendStreet is a mortgage broker and home loan specialist that helps first home buyers find the right loan to meet their needs. We know applying for a loan can be overwhelming and complex. So we help guide and support first home buyers through the process from start to finish. To find out more, head to our website, lendstreet.com.au. We've also put a link in the show notes. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Home Run, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Michael Nasser, and we'll be back next episode covering another step on the journey to owning your first home.